May my words be simple, clear, and accurate. Lord, I ask that you would give ears to hear to all that are in this room and all listening digitally and by download and iPod and iPad and all around the world. Give us ears to hear. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. This morning, I'm continuing in a series. This has just got a little bit of a, a bassy ring to it, Jeff. A series called, What If? Some things are different than when we believed. Or some things are different than we've believed. What do I mean? For instance, one of our messages in this series was, what if we've been wrong about following Jesus? Another one was, what if we've been wrong about the Lord's Prayer? This morning's message I've entitled, What We've Had Wrong About Being Right. Diedrich Bonhoeffer lived in the early 1900s, born in 1906, was a German Lutheran pastor. He was a theologian and an anti-Nazi dissident and key founding member of the Confessing Church. His writings on Christianity's role in the secular world have become widely influential, and his book, The Cost of Discipleship, has become and continues to be a modern classic. It's probably in the curriculum offering of every Bible school in the country, the cost of discipleship. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, and I quote, the knowledge of good and evil seems to be the aim of all ethical reflection. The first task of Christian ethics is to invalidate this knowledge. Again, the knowledge of good and evil seems to be the aim of all ethical reflection. The first task of Christian ethics is to invalidate this knowledge. What we're going to see this morning is that the goal of Christianity, in fact, indeed, the goal of the entire New Testament, isn't ethical behavior. Rather, it's a radical new way of living called love. We're going to learn this morning how to stop getting our life from knowing good and evil. Join me in our text, which is found in the book of Genesis in chapter 2. I'll begin reading in verse 15. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Notice, please, 
that this tree was not only the knowledge of evil, it was the knowledge of good. And the command was, do not eat of this knowledge. For in the day you eat, you will die. Now, that's the beginning. That's where everything begins. The world as we know it, man as we know him, and all religion as we Christians embrace it begins here with God saying, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's continue chapter 3. Now the serpent, verse 1, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice how he's already working in skillfully a lie. It wasn't any tree, it was a tree. He's already getting them to question what God had said. And the woman, verse 2, said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eye, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was standing right there listening to the whole conversation and didn't stop it, didn't rebuke the enemy, didn't take authority in his home. And said, well, okay, well, looks good, let's do it. I've heard, I've heard so many legalists who teach on the subject of men and women from the scriptures say that, well, it was the woman who sinned. It wasn't Adam. She started the whole, Adam was standing there. He heard the whole conversation. Then she turned and said, hey, you want some? He, oh, yeah, I guess so. Looks good. <laughs> Verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. The serpent was correct. And they knew, watch... They knew that they were naked. Then they fashioned a covering. Next verse, the Lord came walking through the garden in the cool of the day, as was his custom, in order to talk with them and fellowship with them and love them and provide to them and receive worship from them. And they hid
the promise to be like God, the promise to know good from evil will never result in more of God or more of His love. It will always result in you becoming uncovered, self-conscious of all of your mistakes and unworthiness. You will fashion your own way to try to make up for it called good works. And when God does come in His love, not in judgment, in His love to embrace you, we run and we hide. Is this not, does this not encapsulize, in a nutshell, human history in a couple of verses? Verse 17 said, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not Eat. Did you know that the foundation of all sin is the knowledge of good and evil? You shall be like God, was the promise. Truth was, they were already like God, made in His very image, had perfect fellowship and unity with the Father, never knew anything else but perfect love. They were already like God in every way. So brilliant was Adam that he named all the animals. Try that. Even the bugs. They all got along. I just smashed one this week that was crawling along the high point of my ceiling. And I saw him. He was a spider. I don't like spiders. You know what I imagine when I see a spider? that when I go to bed at night, that spider's going to find me. <laughs> and he's going to crawl across my forehead, over to my ear, and then get inside of it. I imagine these Star Trek type of scenes where it penetrates me and then it starts growing in my being. It's bad. So I got a piece of paper and I smashed him. That, too, is a result of the fall. Adam never had to do that. He named them all. They all got along. Brilliant. Brilliant love. Brilliant unity. Brilliant oneness with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect unity with the Trinity. And yet they were tempted with something that had a promise that you could be more like God if you only had this. And what was it? The knowledge of good, not just bad, the knowledge of good and evil. We fail to abide in love because we choose to live from our knowledge of good and evil. God never gave Adam, God never gave man the responsibility of separating and determining what is good and what is evil. That kind of judgment belongs to him alone. He alone is capable. He alone is worthy. In verse 7 and 8 in chapter 3 says, Their eyes were open and they discovered their nakedness. They covered and they hid. You see, the prohibition of the tree was simply this to keep Adam in his rightful domain. 
and to glorify God as the source of everything. It wasn't meant to tempt him. I used to teach that. I used to teach that without that tree, Adam wouldn't have had a choice of free will. He would have never been tempted, and so he would have never had a chance to exercise his free will and prove that he really loves God. What a stupid doctrine. So to get you to love God, God has to tempt you to prove that you really love him, huh? How does that work with your children in your child rearing? When you want to teach your child that the stove is hot, do you take their hand, heat up the stove to where it's nice and red hot, and then take it, hold it over the heat, say, now this, this stove is hot, you feel that? Here, mm-mm, a little closer, a little closer, you feel that? It's hot. Don't get up on the stove. They put people like you in padded cells, right? That's called abuse. That's not love. God doesn't need to tempt us to teach us to love him. He wanted our love to come out of just that central place of not judging between right and wrong, but loving him from our core of who we are in him, who he is in us. And instead, we've seen ourselves as specialists on good and evil. That's what the church thinks its job is, to specialize in discerning between good and evil and then being sure that we manage that for you, being sure you know what's right and what's wrong. And of course, if on the scale your right outweighs your wrong and you're good enough, For enough years, before Jesus comes back, you'll go to heaven. Praise the Lord! Our fundamental sin is not our evil, as though the solution for sin was to become good. But our getting life from what we believe is our knowledge of good and evil. Our fundamental sin is that we place ourselves in the position of God and divide the world between what we judge to be good and what we judge to be evil. And Jesus comes into that, born of a virgin, with nothing but the pure character and love of God flowing through his veins, though he was 100% human. He was a human being. Jesus walks into that mess and demonstrates what's wrong with being right. Want to go there? Huh? Go there with me? Okay. Number one, he deals with the difference between religion and relationship. Here's what he said in John's Gospel. Chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and that it's But it's them that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. So while you are so set and so steeped on knowing your Bible and being able to quote chapter and verse, you miss the very one that the Bible's written about. You miss the very one from whose heart comes life, thinking that if you just... Pray enough and read your Bible enough and go to church enough and you're good enough and eliminate uh, eliminate enough bad behavior from your life, God will accept you. 
Jesus says in modern vernacular, how's that working for you? (laughs) Because Paul said the strength of sin is the law. The constant daily awareness that you don't measure up, you're not good enough, my, my behaviors aren't pleasing to the Lord. I have to arrest this and arrest that and be better and more pleasing to God and read my Bible more and love Him more. And all this works-based relationship actually forces. It brings up within us desires we never knew were alive. Have you ever had that happen? Have you ever found out that if you're trying to stop smoking, that the more you try to stop smoking, the more you want to smoke? Have you ever found out that the more you try to stop eating, the hungrier you get? Have you ever tried to love somebody at work who's just nasty? But I've got to love them. I'm a Christian. Have you ever found out that the more you try to love somebody, the more you despise them? (laughs) What is that? That's Paul's doctrine and theology of the spirit of man and our relationship with God and religion. Religion says, I have to stop, I can't, I must not, I have to change this so that I can have more of God. When relationship says he has redeemed us to himself, not by any work that I have done, he brought me into his self through Jesus Christ, paid the price and the penalty for my sin, judged sin in his flesh on the cross when he died, and then offers me new life that when I receive it, The rest of my time on earth becomes simply abiding in Him every day, living by His grace, and not trying to judge between right and wrong, good or evil. This is acceptable. This is unacceptable. Paul called it in Ephesians 5 just living out of our spirit. That sounds like a good deal to me. Here's the message translation of John chapter 5, verse 39 and 40. You have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures are all about me. And I am here, standing right before you. And you aren't willing to receive from me the life you say you want. Powerful. All right, next. He brings to light the issue of judgment and love. The knowledge of good and evil or just living out of love. Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. A little bit longer passage. Do we have that one, Sam? All right. If you'll look on the screen from the New Living Translation, at about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, so they began breaking off some heads of the grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it, and they protested, Look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Jesus said to them, Haven't you read in the Scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God, and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. 
And haven't you read that in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple may work on the Sabbath? I tell you, there is one here who is greater than the temple. Now, that was blasphemy because to the Jewish people, there was nothing greater than the temple. I mean, after all, that's where God's presence dwelt. And it was out of the temple that God gave instruction for life. It was out of the temple that we even knew God and how to worship Him. It was in the temple that we went to experience God, to know God. And here is Jesus turning the whole thing upside down theologically and doctrinally and saying, look, there's something here right now in your presence that's greater than all of your religious tradition, that's greater than the temple itself. But you would not have condemned my innocent disciples if you knew the meaning of this scripture. I want to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. Dear ones, could there be anything clear? Day after day, we keep thinking that our relationship with God is based on whether we can appease Him and offer Him a sacrifice of behavior that He will approve. And he says, I am not looking for your sacrifices. I love you just because I love you. I have mercy on you just because I love you. You're precious and wonderful just because I think you're precious and you are wonderful. And I accept you just like you are. And don't you know that when he made that covenant, don't you know that when Jesus hung there on that cross and paid the penalty for all of our sin, past, present, and future, that God knew well you and I wouldn't be able to live up to the moral code of the Scripture. Try as we may. In fact, he knew that the harder we tried, like Paul said, the strength of sin is the law. He knew that the harder we tried, it would get worse. You know what that's meant to do, Art? Drive you to Jesus to where you finally give up and say, Okay, I accept your love. I understand it's not based on my works or anything I do. And Lord, thank you for helping me understand It's not about what I know that's good, and it's not about what I know that's evil. It's just about receiving your love and what you did on the cross for me in Jesus. A great deal of our problem is that we still get life from judging others. Have you ever sat in a mall not really having anything to do, not being there to actually shop and get anything. But you're one of these people that enjoys going to the mall and sitting there and just watching people. (laughs) Have you ever done that? Come on. And as people are walking by, what do you do? Boy, that one's fat. Goodness sakes, I'd never wear my hair that long. Dear Lord, they must have been half asleep when they joined those colors this morning and put that on. 
I bet that person's not a Christian. Look how they're acting. Look how loud they're sounding. Christians wouldn't act like that. Come on, you've sat in the mall, you've sat in the airport, and you have passed those very judgments based on what? Your knowledge of good and evil, and it goes all the way back to the garden where God said, if you eat of that, if you base your life on a knowledge of good and evil, you will die. But we, we derive life from it. There was a gentleman in the Scripture who was doing likewise. In fact, he happened to be a religious leader known as a Pharisee. Here's what happened. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. He was, by the way, looking at a tax collector who in that day was just one of the worst types of sinners. I mean, whatever category you would choose today of just a a really rank, outcast, socially unacceptable, really a sinful life. This is that person. So the tax collector is looking at that person. He, he's in the airport with all the camels. He's, getting, he's, he's waiting for his camel to come up. All right. And the Pharisee is judging this tax collector who's waiting there for a second or third camel in line. And the Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed this. Here's what he prayed. Listen. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. And from such a judgment, we get life. Central to Christianity, central to our core values, is that we must never separate our love from God from our love for our neighbor. You can't. You cannot judge your neighbor and love God. Impossible. James chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. Many people have never read this in the New Testament. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother. He speaks evil against the law and he judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. There's only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to operate in the knowledge of good and evil, determining what alone is God's, that this is acceptable and this is not? That person is approved. That person is not. This behavior is okay. That behavior God is displeased with, he will judge. And yet we live our lives out of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what's wrong with being right. The goal of all ethical instruction... The goal of all behavioral injunctions in your Bible, especially as we move forward into the New Covenant, the New Testament, is not to act different. It's to help us be different. So, for instance, we take the great chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, right? One of the instructions there says love is not rude. And we read that as an injunction about behavior that we must stop being rude. Have you ever tried to stop being rude? 
<laughs> How's that working for you? It brings up all sorts of new rudeness. I, I mean, you will think things about people you've never thought before. So we go through our day, I can't be rude, I can't be rude. I, I, I can't be rude, I can't be rude. And we're thinking this. This is our Christianity. Living out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Living according to what's right instead of out of the spirit of love and grace. And so we try not to be rude. And then something happens at work or something happens on the highway. Here's a good one. This one always pushes my button. I don't know why. I need to ask the Lord about this. But when I'm in my car, the highway was made for me. Where I have to go is where everybody should be going. But since they're not, they're all wrong. And of course, wherever they have to go is secondary to where I have to be in 10 minutes and I'm late. So I expect everybody's driving, everybody's decision, the lanes they get into, how fast they drive, whether they move over as I need to pass. Especially merging. Merging. Oh, merging. Am I glad I drive what I gl uh, drive? Uh, oh, I'd be in 100 accidents a month if I didn't drive the car that I have that has the engine that it has. Why? Because it's all about other people not being rude to me when I'm in my car. And if you are rude to me, it's not pretty. I have chased people. I have honked at people. I have waved with my middle finger. I have stopped next to them and rode, rolled my window down. But love is not rude. So here's the deal. What I've been practicing is rather than being overly aware of the injunction, don't be rude, I remind myself when I get in my car that I am full of God, that I am his representative, that I live and abide in him, that his love is flowing through me. And then when something happens on the highway, something takes over. That, that little, you know, now the, the thought, because you're practiced in right and wrong, you're practiced in this injunctions against behavior, we are so practiced in this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is so embedded in you that those thoughts may come up, but something bigger rises up in me. And I, and, and I have this little faint, it might be faint, but it's a thought that comes to me. You know, that person might not be feeling well. Maybe they're later for their appointment than you are. Maybe they're in a hurry and cut you off because they were trying to get over so that they could get to work because the last time they were late, their boss told them, if they're late again, that's it, you're out. Maybe, maybe I can live out of the tree of love and grace rather than the knowledge of what's good and what's evil.
And I don't have to compare my schedule with their schedule, my time with their time, their look with my look. I can just live out of God's love. You see, love is affirming the unsurpassable worth of every individual, regardless of how immoral or unlovable he or she might be. And so when I'm in that car, I just have to remind myself, you know, that's somebody Jesus died for. That's somebody right now that Jesus is coming into their vehicle and wrapping his arms around them and telling them how much he loves them. What a great day they're going to have. Jeff Corson, don't you dare add to a bad day. You add to my arms being around them and love them and, f- and fill their car with grace. Love is affirming the unsurpassable worth of every individual, regardless of how immoral and unlovable he or she might be. And so, we're left with one thing. If you're going to decide not to live out of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to have to accept the message of the New Testament, the message that Jesus came. It's called the gospel. It's called the good news. And what is it? It is a radical goal of God. Love. Love instead of the knowledge of good and evil. But Pastor Jeff, isn't the knowledge of good a good thing? Aren't aren't we as Christians supposed to be promoting the knowledge of good? Isn't following God all about increasing our knowledge of good and evil so that we can side with the good and resist the evil? No. But that's where we've been living. We think the goal of being a Christian is to embrace a moral system, live by it, and be good people in contrast with those who are evil. And it's completely contrary to the New Testament gospel and the message that Jesus came to deliver. Playing God, which is critically assessing and evaluating everything and everyone from our limited, finite, biased perspective, from which we try then to uh, derive our likeness with God, is destroying our Christian witness. And it's caused hundreds of thousands of people who might otherwise consider Jesus or consider coming to our church to stay away. You say, but Jeff, didn't didn't Jesus say in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, that we weren't to judge, but then that he told us that we were to inspect the fruit, to be careful of false prophets. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment because the word used for judgment there is very interesting. The root for that word in the Greek, karino, literally means to separate. We get our English word critic from that, as in a movie critic. So a movie critic takes one movie and then compares it to another and separates them in terms of good and bad, acceptable or not. You want to see this, you don't want to see that. And to be sure, love can help people separate good and wise actions, for example, from bad and, wise, uh, bad and unwise ones. God's love and spirit does empower us to distinguish between life that is reconciled with God and life that drives us further away from God. But here's the difference. When Jesus uses that word judge or judgment, 
He's talking about separating people. Any judgment that lays on people a label that tries to determine or separate people into categories of right and wrong, acceptable or not, is unacceptable to God. And Bonhoeffer wrote this, and please, please listen, and I quote, Judgment passed on another man always presupposes disunion with him. It is an obstacle to action. When we judge other people, we confront them in a spirit of detachment, observing and reflecting, as it were, from the outside. But love has neither time nor opportunity for this. If we love, we can never observe the other person from a place of detachment, end quote. Isn't that great? In other words, what? Love is ascribing to every person unsurpassable worth and value. And so even when it's the most sinful of person. What does love do? Love, like God, climbs into their mess with them. Climbs in with them to help guide them to a wiser decision, a closer walk with God, a more meaningful life on this earth. To where finally Jesus can touch their heart, peel back the layers of unbelief and fear. And reveal his great love to them. God's goal for us is much more profound and much more beautiful than merely being good. It is to do the will of God by being loving just as God is loving. That's a quote from Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd wrote a book upon which I've based a number of things in my message today called Repenting from Religion. There is no book in the past 30 years that has more affected my walk with God and changed the way I view this topic. And in fact, indeed, my entire worldview and how I'm walking in Christianity. Then Greg's, Greg, Greg's book, Greg Boyd's book, Repenting from Religion. You must read it. What did Jesus say was the distinguishing mark of a disciple? Can anybody tell me? Oh, you know it. Come on. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. God is not first and foremost interested in acquiring a people who happen to believe all the right things and act in all the right ways. God's first concern, and really His only concern, is to have a people who are united with Him in love. Indeed, as we have seen, God's goal is to have a people who participate in the same love that the Trinity itself enjoys eternally. God's love does not first start with an ethical ideal and then pronounce judgment. Listen, God's love does not first start with an ethical ideal and then when you miss it, pass judgment. God doesn't start where He wishes we were, condemning us for where we are not. God starts where we actually are and then pronounces hope 
And he patiently and graciously loves us into becoming all that we can become in Christ because, in fact, we are already in Christ. And so God is just loving us as he sees we are in Christ rather than the way we're acting. And wouldn't that be a wonderful way to love everyone? What's wrong with being right? Well, our love must never be given without consideration. Our love must be given, excuse me, our love must be given without consideration to the relative merits or faults of the person that we are encountering or dealing with. I submit to you once again, the goal of Christianity, indeed the goal of the entire New Testament, isn't ethical behavior. It is a radical way of new life called love. 